All right, so let's get into it today. Um, this, of course, is Pentecost, and so we decided uh, J- Josiah, uh, there he is, uh, had a burden on his heart about uh, Pentecost and prepared a special message, so we decided to, uh, and Stephen was on vacation for a week, so we decided to have me take his spot so he could not have to be putting a message together while on vacation. It's not, it's not that fun while you're swimming. So, um, we've been doing this uh, series called Components of All Biblical Covenants, and I'm really, really getting serious about writing this into a book. Uh, As I was discussing this with Ray last night, um, some of you might remember that uh, Sam Chen Sing Poon shared a message on covenants in uh, some I, don't, I think it was at the 930 service. I, I'm not, I can't remember how that for sure. But he mentioned uh, a guy named Ray Sutton. And Ray Sutton, in the denomination that uh, Christ the King Dominion Academy is part of, Ray Sutton is the number one bishop in that denomination. Peter Manteau, as some of you know, our old friend, is uh, number two bishop in that denomination. And um, Ray Sutton wrote a book about covenant, which he identifies six components of all biblical covenants. And he uses his own acronym. It's Theos, but he adds another S, because so, Theos, of course, would be T, five letters. So he adds another S to get six. six. And he has all six of, the, of those fit in, are, are in points in my 12. But as far as I know, almost no one is, is thinking about that. And so, you know, one of the problems we're getting into in our, in our culture is we are, have become a nation of covenant breakers. And we, uh, based on our divorce rate, uh, you, it's quite obvious that people don't understand much about covenant. And, and that's a... Uh, that's a nationwide problem, and it coincides uh, uh, exactly, it overlaps you know, point per point with our culture becoming more and more godless over the last 150 years or so. And uh, as, as uh, Protestant Christians began to uh, preach a retreatist message, the great escape and the great rapture and it's going to get darker and darker, and NEM, there's a twister, and, you know, we're all going to die, and all that kind of stuff. We have reaped that in the culture. And uh, so most Christians don't think redeeming the culture should even be a goal. My, my good friend, Luke Gallagher, in, uh, in Tampa Covenant Church, was very involved in building a very wonderful Christian school in Tampa. And somehow they had, they had brought people that weren't Tampa Covenant people into the board, and gradually this, this Baptist group took over. And the guy who became the new head said to Lou, Lou, I'm not interested in redeeming the culture. I'm interested in saving some souls for heaven. And, uh, you know, if your salvation doesn't work for in your family, 
if it doesn't work in your job, if it doesn't work in your education, if it doesn't work in social, political, economic realms, then it's not real. The word salvation is a total term, and it uh, soteriology deals with everything that was affected by the fall of man. And guess what? The fall of man happened shortly after creation, and everything in creation was, was destroyed by the fall of man. And Jesus, when he said it's finished, he didn't come to save your soul to punch a ticket for heaven. He came to bring the kingdom of God into your life and into our lives and into the world now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guess what? God would not command you to pray for that if he didn't want you to also work for that. Like, Lord, I'm praying this, but please don't answer my prayer. <laughs> you told us to pray for this, but you were probably just kidding. That's the current posture of the church. So, um, now, if you're looking at your outlines, you'll notice that we have d done two times, two messages. Is that correct? Or three? Uh, two. This is the third message, right, in this series. Uh, we did the first one at the um, uh, celebration of uh, church membership and so forth. And so we've reviewed page one for both of those messages. So we're going to get into page two. Now, every covenant, some of these uh, 12 points could be overlapped to their, every covenant has promises, every covenant has fulfillment. When you say your vows at your wedding, you don't go like, well, I promise uh, to be with you in thick and thin, unless I'm having a bad day, <laughs> you know, uh, I'll, I'll be faithful once in a while. Uh, so there's promises. And uh, as you look at the eight covenants of the Bible that we talked about, all the covenants add up to the one goal and the one goal that's the, the, the fulfillment of all the covenants, sorry, Josiah, is Pentecost. All the promises of God flow through from Genesis 1 to Pentecost. And God's intention in creating Robbie Johnson and uh, Christiana and Logan back there, uh, God's intention was to fill you with his spirit. And everything God has been doing, his ultimate goal has been to fill you so that he could fill a people and he could fill us so that he could fill the whole earth so that he could fill the whole universe with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that the Holy Spirit would be in the atmosphere, the oxygen of the kingdom of God. If you want to know what heaven's going to be like, it's going to be a place where there's no need for a light 
because the lamb, the light is the lamb. There's no need uh, for anything because the presence of God permeates all and is in all and through all and for all uh, to the glory of God forever. Pentecost is the ultimate goal that, uh, of all the covenants of God in the whole Bible. And what the reason there's such a spiritual war in our culture isn't just because of those bad, nasty people called the Enlightenment, the, the Endarkament. Uh, it's, it's not because of humanism exalting man against God and so forth. The reason is God can, can t- you know, God is okay with the fact that Jane got a doctorate and won a prestigious fellowship just this week. And thank congratulations. And, um, but he doesn't want Jane to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the enemy, I'm saying, not God. The enemy, his goal in Jane's life is that she, he, he's okay with her getting a prestigious fellowship as long as she doesn't act out on that fellowship in the power of the Holy Spirit. So uh, uh, that's a little off the notes, but uh, all the promises of God add up to being filled with the Holy Spirit. And in in essence, what was lost in, in the Garden of Eden and the sanctions of the Adamic covenant and what was lost at the Tower of Babel in the sanctions against the Noahic covenant uh, or they created the Noe Covenant. Um, what was lost was uh, all the world being filled with God's Spirit. And uh, if you will, in Acts chapter 2, when 120 people speak 120 different languages and 17 nations, and 17 represents all the nations, so we can get into a reason why later. Uh, Stephen can tell you how that. Um, You know, if you take uh, the reason there was 153 fish in Genesis, or in Genesis, in John 20 and 21, the reason there was 153 fish is one plus two plus three plus four plus five all the way to 17 equals 153 which is symbolic of all the peoples of the earth. And so what, what, is being, what is being foreshadowed when Jesus tells the disciples after the resurrection to let down their nets, if you remember uh, in Matthew 4, no, I, no, 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 when does he tell them to let down their nets? Um, Somebody look up the chapter. Anyway, that uh, reoccurs in... So in the early part of the Gospels, especially Luke 5, when Jesus is first calling them and they let down their nets, what did they they catch, 153 fish? No. What did they catch? No. When when Jesus tells them to let down their nets. They had caught zero all night until they they were having a bad fishing night. (laughs) Uh, 
They caught so many, they couldn't bring in the harvest. They, had, uh, they actually had to promote Christian unity by calling their fellow fishermen to come help them get the catch. <laughs> Can you imagine if we had to call other churches because like, there, there's too many people getting saved and filled with the Spirit and delivered from demons. Can you come help? Yeah, right. I mean, they were filled, they were filled beyond capacity. They were breaking OSHA laws. <laughs> right, in the ocean. But they weren't in the ocean, just a lake. But that particular one is symbolic of, I'm calling you to be fishers of men. And the, they, if you remember, they were expert fishermen. That was the lesson here. They had fished since they were little kids. Their fathers had brought them up to be fishermen. They were like Elijah Bradbury hunting or something, you know. Uh, uh, they, they were like if Logan ever has a son, uh, they're playing football or basketball or something, you know. He'll probably be born with a basketball, you know, in cleats. Ooh. But... Uh, <laughs> The, these guys were expert fishermen, and the whole point of Jesus' lesson in Luke 5, uh, in, in the other Gospels, I'm not, I don't remember what the exact chapter was, Mark, I think it's whatever. So the whole point is, with all their expertise, because of the providence of God and because of his calling on their life, they caught nothing all night. And they weren't being slackers. Uh, probably some of us here, sadly, have never worked all night. I would encourage you to have had several times in your life where you worked all night. Where you worked a 24 to 36 hour shift without a break. I actually would encourage you to do, to do that. It, it builds toughness for one thing. And it makes dinner afterward really good. It makes sleep great. You know, there's all kind of proverbs about the worker's appetite working for him. So, um, but, you know, they caught nothing. And then, the, when, then when Jesus told them to put down their nets, remember they object. And they come short, they, they, you know, there's a kind of social interplay. They, you know, they don't just come out and say, Jesus, you're a stupid carpenter. You don't know anything about fishing. But they're thinking that, I can guarantee you that, right? And they're thinking, we fished all night and we didn't find any. What are you thinking? Who the heck do you think you are, God or something? That's what they're thinking. And, and so Jesus helps them understand, for now on they'll be fishers of men, and he is God. And the fruit is up to him. You know, obedience in evangelizing and proclaiming the gospel is up to you. Fruit, God hasn't called you to bear fruit for most. He's called you to obey. The fruit's up to Now, that doesn't mean if you're not fruitful, you shouldn't. Ask God for more wisdom, and of course, ultimately, fruit is His to give. 
So later, after the resurrection, the 153 is because he's using the same metaphor of fishing and that he's the Lord of all the fish, but he's teaching them something else. This mentality that you guys have grown up in, where the court of the Gentiles is where you sell pigs and doves and stuff, instead of using it as it was intended to bring the Gentiles in the kingdom of God, and this hatred of Israel for all of its neighbors and all the other nations around it, that was never God's will, that was never God's intention, and part of what the resurrection about is all of that's going to stop. And you're going to go proclaim the gospel into all men in all nations. You're going to have guys like Thomas make it to India in the first century. You're going to have guys like Andrew and so forth make it to Finland and Sweden in the first century. You're going to have guys make it to Puerto Rico in the first century. No, <laughs> probably not. Just kidding. Um, but you're not done till you get to all of them. That's what the 153 fish is about. There will, there will be tr- men of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And that is God's doing. All right, so that's all free, no, no extra charge. Now, we, we ended with saying how God himself would provide himself as the, uh, as the offering. So let's start uh, talking about the components of covenants in the remaining time we have this morning. Uh, it's hard because that light is glares on the clock, but as far as I can tell, it's about three minutes after 10, and so I have uh, 67 minutes to go. All right. <laughs> so um, I have to be done by 1130, right? Um, somewhere in there. So, we, we, uh, we introduced the point that biblical covenants are based on ancient covenants. Uh, one of the things you'll notice of the structure of Genesis chapter 1 and the Ten Commandments and everything in the Old Testament is they use all of the structures and forms of the other nations around Israel all the time. And they have an exact opposite meaning every time. Every time. And so in the ancient world, uh, it was all about pride and making a name for ourselves. And so when when a nation became powerful, it became powerful because it had a powerful leader. Nimrod going forward. Uh, powerful leaders ad nauseum, ad infinitum, right? And so uh, those powerful leaders, when they conquered uh, a people, they made it very clear, we now own you. You belong to us. You you are our slaves. The ancient world birthed uh, slavery. It was a very different type of slavery, and that's a whole other issue than what chattel slavery was in the uh, beginning in the 15th century. But the the ancient world, when they conquered their enemy, the, the the whole nation became that you know Pharaoh or whoever's slave, or the king of Babylon or whatever. 
and they imposed on them what's called a Susandry covenant. And I think we spelled that in your notes on the previous page, I think, somewhere. Maybe. All right. Um, let's see if it's there. If, if somebody needs me to spell it, I can spell it. Um, so in, in any case, the form of all the biblical covenants uh, are Susanry covenants, and in, in the way the world used them, they were to exalt the suzerain, the, the, the monarch, the, re, the reigning uh, totalitarian king, Bab, Nebuchadnezzar or whoever, right? And that's what you see played out all through the Old Testament as various kingdoms emerge and conquer the kingdoms around Israel and, and at times uh, eventually Israel, Right? Now, the whole point of the Sudanry Covenant is to proclaim the total, absolute rule and glory and honor of the king. The Bible can't tolerate that. So the Bible's Sudanry Covenants are to do the same thing, but not for any man ever. God is God. He does not share his glory with another. The only way to partake of God's glory is for you to give him the glory. And then he includes you in the celebration of his glory. But if you try to get glory for yourself, if you become a TV evangelist or uh, try to you know, get a bigger name ministry and all that kind of stuff, uh, God will... Uh, I was going to say something more crass. God will uh, mess that up. <laughs> God will frustrate that all the time, everywhere, forever. It's happened to all the would-be Alexander the Greats, Genghis Khans, and Adolf Hitlers throughout all of history, and it always will. It happened to Nimrod. And there's only going to be one king of all the sojourns that every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess and, and proclaim his glory uh, forever and ever. And it's already happening, unlike premillennial eschatology. He, when, it, when he said it was finished, it's finished. You know, I, I use this illustration all the time. After D-Day, the war was over. It, the rest was a mop-up operation, very costly mop-up operation. But while, while uh, Frenchmen, English, Belgian, and, and American soldiers were fighting and die, dying to take more ground, uh, Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, who was the most high-integrity guy in the bunch, and Franklin Roosevelt, Stalin and Roosevelt are completely reprehensible figures in the, in the entire process, were meeting while these guys are dying to, car, to carve up and to decide the timetable. The reason they, the troops met in Berlin is uh, Joseph Stalin, who Roosevelt admired and thought was wonderful and thought he was the greatest guy in the world, uh, despite Chamberlain's objection, or, or, 
Churchill's objections and his, not Chamberlain, Churchill's objections and so forth, Stalin talked Roosevelt in holding up so that the Russians could get to Germany. And we got to, to Berlin months later at the cost of hundreds of American soldiers' lives because uh, Roosevelt thought Joseph Stalin was great. And look, read all the documents from Yalta and Potsdam. So, now, why is that important? In Susan Covenants, it starts with identifying the parties. And especially uh, all the members of the covenant, but it starts with the, the Lord of the covenant. God doesn't share his glory with another. He identifies himself always as the Lord. And so in biblical covenants, the problem why Christianity is not working for most people today is they're trying to, to bargain and, and have their way and, and have the covenant read the way they want it to read. But you can accept it or you can reject it, but all attempts, would-be attempts to alter to it are doomed to total judgment, frustration, and failure. And most Christians are still trying to, to alter the terms of the government to have God be the Lord they want him to be. That's what the prosperity gospel is all about. God, give me, give me, give me, give me. Rolling. Come on, sevens. Oh, Cadillac in Jesus' name. Personally, I'd probably... I'm not a car. What's that? I think it's wrong. I wouldn't bet on sports. I think it corrupts the game. I love sports, and I think it corrupts the game. So, personally, now, if it's a friendly bet, like I once bet 25 cents on a game with my boss, and uh, this was back in the 90s, and I won, and he, uh, being the, sarcastic guy that he was he I can't I when I arrived at work the next morning there were 25 pennies stacked on top of each other on my on my desk I, I don't know how long it took him to stack those but <laughs> he wasn't about to put a quarter on there <laughs> so uh yeah I I I actually think most forms of, again if if you gamble uh, first of all, keep it outside of crime syndicates, and the, that's a whole problem with the gambling. But so you know, say you and Daniel want to have a private Daniel Williams want to have a private bet on the Cavaliers, or I don't know, or the Buckeyes, or something. As long as it's it's kind of like uh, I I would play I would play poker for money, but I wouldn't play anything above penny ante poker. So it, you know, like. Uh, I would never spend on that more than I'd spend it in the evening at the movies. You know, I, I like to go to the actual theater, oh, once or twice a year. Generally, I don't like it. I wait till it comes out on some form that you can watch at home. That's why I have nice sound around and nice TV and all that. But occasionally, I do, and I always get, uh, I always pay the expensive exorbitant rate for the biggest size popcorn they have. <laughs> And a Diet Coke. <laughs> and uh, 
So, you you know, like by the time you take your wife and uh, maybe Golda or someone else, you, you, you know, you, you probably got 20, 25 bucks into it for the evening. Uh, I might, if I were going to play cards, I might play cards where I could potentially lose 10 or 12 bucks, but I wouldn't ever do more myself. I'm not, if I'm going to take risk, I'm going to take risk for the kingdom of God and I'm going to be all in uh, for it very and I, I'm okay if it's dangerous and dangerous to your family and your finances and everything else if it's a risk for Christ. No, not, not, I'm not talking about foolishness. So anyway, let's, let's uh, stay on. The first thing is the parties are identified. They always start with the Lord, and then they start with the subjects. And in essence, one of the reasons we have, we have this man-centered gospel today and what's in it for you, but what the gospel is, is you were bought with a price. You were a slave to sin, sa- Satan, and this world, to its pride, to its ideas, to its I know all there is to know about whatever your field is, and I'm an expert on and all this uh, you're in bondage to all these things that the world is. And Christ came to set you free from all that. And he came to set you free by making you his slave, whereas you were a slave out of fears and compulsions and other evil and wrong motives in, in the kingdom of darkness, you're now a slave out of re- thankful, gracious, loving response to grace. And the Bible's definition of, of freedom is to be a complete love slave of Christ. That's freedom. That's what you are meant to be. You'll never find, uh, you know, as uh, they always quote from uh, Augustine, Lord, you have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are ever restless until they find their rest in thee. Whatever area of your life that you're, like the reason Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially Matthew uh, 6, starting in verse 19 through 34, says don't be anxious, don't be worried, don't be anxious, don't be worried. Right in the middle of verse 24, it seems like if you don't know biblical thinking, it seems like he changed the subject. Because in verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Because you'll either love the one and hate the other or cling to one and despise the other. The, what he's telling you is anxiousness means to be divided between two masters. You'll experience worry. It's God's love gift to you. If you're worried, God is telling you he's not reigning in that area. You are. And you're st- still yet in bondage. That's why you're worried. That's why you're fearful. There's no fear in Christ. You know, when it describes that there's no need for a light there because the lamb is the light and so forth, do you think Jesus is up in heaven worrying about, oh, my gosh, I hope Teresa doesn't mess up tomorrow. <laughs> now, now Teresa might, Teresa might or might not mess up tomorrow, but God is not worried about it. <laughs> And God is ultimately going to win because he's progressively, part of his love gift of salvation, part of his 
components of the covenant and his fulfilling the covenant, he's, he's gradually making himself the full Lord and, and setting you free from you, the, the world system, and the devil being the Lord. That's what's killing you, having your own way. You know, we live in a culture that has tremendous disrespect for anybody God raises up in authority. That's a terrible bondage to be in that place. Well, we got a few more minutes, so let's go on to... So you get the, the, the first component is identification of the parties. I am the Lord your God. Da, 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 da. And implications of, of who he is and why he is the rightful king and you're not. The gospel doesn't say, and you're the king. <laughs> That's not part of the gospel. Nor the, any, any of the biblical covenants. Secondly, there's always a historical prologue. Our, our forefathers, uh, 35 of the 38 uh, men at the Constitutional Convention were biblical church-going Christians. Ben Franklin was one of the exceptions. But uh, they were biblical thinkers and so uh, they started with, we the people, and they have a preamble. And if you properly understand our Constitution, the, the uh, document that's part of our Constitution that sets it up is called the Declaration of Independence. And it makes much of identifying the parties, especially King George. I guess the third, if I remember right. It's hard to keep track of all your Georges. But uh, <laughs> I've never had enough to have to keep track of them. <laughs> never want, you know, Georges or one another. <laughs> so um, the, the, the historical prologue always declares uh, the independence of the people and, and so forth. And the, the ruler's right to be doing all this. And all covenants in the Bible have an historical prologue. Uh, the Noahic covenant, which is sometimes called the societal covenant, the, it, it really starts in Genesis 6 when God looks down upon the earth and the heart of man is to do violence and wickedness all the time and he was grieved that he makes man. Uh, that's all part of the historical prologue. Thirdly, uh, is a declaration of the new order. From now, you've been used to doing this, but from now on, this. This is why this uh, American, uh, you prayed at an altar and said, oh God, I'm so sorry. And you go up every week for 16 years. And uh, it doesn't affect your lifestyle at all. None, none of that has anything to do with biblical Christianity. It, do, it frankly doesn't. To, to, be, to be a Christian and to make him your savior must include his being your Lord because guess what? 
he's saving you from being your own Lord. That was your problem. <laughs> People always go, do you have to make Jesus Lord to make him your Savior? Uh, if you ask that kind of question, you're not really wanting to deal with God. You're still wanting your terms. So in the new order, God absolutely is Lord, and he grants you the covenant and the co by his grace. He is your Redeemer King. Remember last, when we were talking about uh, uh, the note at the end of the last page that ultimately in all biblical covenants, God himself fulfills the term for both parties. No one in the Bible other than God ever fulfilled any covenants or any terms. We are all covenant breakers. Right? How many, I, re, I remember, uh, I was always told that, you know, I, uh, again, at, at my friend's funeral yesterday, or at my friend's mother's funeral, actually, we're talking to old friends, and, you know, the, the idea came up that was always, I was always, all my friends were uh, at least six months, but usually a year or a year and a half older than me because I started school a year early. Because they, they was like, oh, he scores well on IQ tests, and he can read and so forth. Well, what your potential is has nothing to do with who you actually are. <laughs> so uh, I... I shouldn't have started uh, early. But he grants the covenant based on his grace, not based on your performance. You, you are and we are covenant breakers. Just, I always got terrible grades. <laughs> In ninth grade, I, I got a 1.2 average. 1.2 means you got... Uh, uh, four, four D's for every C. <laughs> I got four D's and a C. <laughs> and uh, way to go, genius. Uh, and uh, I earned that, <laughs> every bit of it. I worked hard at not working. <laughs> and I reaped what I sowed. But um, there was a point I was going for out of that. Let's see if I can remember it. Um, the fact is, we, we are covenant breakers. Oh, we're not, out of time. So uh, we'll, that's, that's actually a good uh, stopping point because next week we'll deal with the most controversial point in the whole Bible, that all covenants have hierarchy. And guess what? In, when you're a Christian, you have uh, a boss, uh, you have a pastor, you have uh, various uh, hierarchies that God puts in your life, and you can't just, uh, you know, go to Ohio State's uh, occupational therapy program and go, I don't like what you guys are doing here. <laughs> Let me just change the, all the terms here. <laughs> uh, you can't do that. There, uh, in, in your what we're going to see is your response to God is your response to God's representatives that he puts in your life. Always.
inescapably. The children of Israel didn't, weren't rejecting Moses. They were rejecting God. And if you disrespect, uh, say, you know, Deanna teaches at a Christian school. If she throws off, if she disrespects the leadership of the school or whatever, God's going to judge her for that because there's hierarchy in all covenants. All covenants. And it's the most disliked point of all Christians about God. Amen. (laughs) 